We're going. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Molly Starback. I'm the director of the postdoc office here at Duke. Thank you very much for coming. Today we have one of Duke's favorite speakers, backed by popular demand, uh, Scott Morgan. Uh, Scott will be here with us for three days. Today's topic is improving spoken English. Tomorrow is speaking about science, and Thursday is interviewing skills. Um, and all three of these workshops represent a joint effort between my office, the Office of Postdoctoral Services, the Duke University Postdoctoral Postdoc Association, Graduate Student <laughs> Affairs, and Graduate Career Services. We have um, Virginia Steinmetz, our Graduate Career Counselor, to thank for these yummy goodies out in the lobby. Um, Scott has been teaching presentation skills for over 10 years. He's spoken at NIH, at Merck, and universities including Cornell, Maryland, Minnesota, and our neighbor, UNC Chapel Hill. He also co-authored the book, Speaking About Science, which will be offered on sale tomorrow, I believe, up in the lobby. So, Scott, we are very pleased to welcome you back. Thank you for coming. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. I begin with this as you've been trickling in, you may have glanced up at the screen. And I, I found this online, I found it rather charming. But it says, I'll just read a little bit of it to you. Only smart people can. I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what I was reading, the phenomenal power of the human mind. It goes on and on. At the bottom it says, so apparently it only has to do with the first letter and the last letter of a word that makes it comprehensible. And then it's, concludes by saying, and we thought spelling was important. And I like this because that's a written version of what I call this seminar, which is the unspoken rules of spoken English. Meaning that you may, you're all fluent, you know the vocabulary, it's, you're going along quite well in your English studies, and that there's this other part that is not taught which is what Americans are listening for. That's how I, that's another way to think about this. Why is it that you go to a store and say something, or you go to your, your um, the dean and say something and go, what? So there must be something, it's not vocabulary, it's something to do with understanding. And that is precisely what this seminar is. There are these unspoken rules of the antenna that Americans have on that you are not aware of. And I'm sorry nobody told you, but that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna say how do, we could retitle this, how do Americans listen? Might be a better way to think about it. I'm going to fluctuate my terminology, and I should apologize first, that I will use English, I will use American interchangeably. I think it's very beneficial to learn American pronunciation in spoken English for a number of reasons. One, we're here. Two, it is the becoming the scientific language, the engineering language, the computer language is less and less British as it had been maybe 20 years ago. And now it's almost strictly American. Some of that has to do with funding. And then thirdly, which cannot be ignored, which is Hollywood. Meaning that people hear programs, they hear movies, and that's the accent that globally people are starting to mimic, if nothing else. Rightly or wrongly, it seems to be a gravitational force to American spoken English. Personally, I think British English is much more beautiful. And I wish we could all learn that, and it would be very nice and very charming, and we'd, 
and we would all be on television like the BBC. But we live here, we speak differently, we have different antenna for how we perceive things. To kind of further that idea along about how do we understand each other, I came up with a very simple schematic, and I call it the clarity cup. And it looks, if, can you say that all right? No, it's no, no blank, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I wanna see you guys, so I'll um, keep going back and forth between the lights. Lights preset one. Better? Okay. But that's going to wreak havoc with our recording, so I'll, I'm going to go back and forth. So I call it the clarity cup, and I'll go through this relatively briefly, but it, there's nothing magical about the term. It's just that there are things that Americans slash native English speakers will give you. Without a doubt, we say, you know, don't worry about certain things, and you should be aware of those. But there's a uh, quid pro quo with this. There's another set of things that we expect you to give to us. And that's why I kind of came up with this little clarity cup idea, meaning that if I donate a certain amount of things, and then you donate a certain amount of things, we understand each other perfectly. So the first thing that looks bears in mind, which we can't talk about spoken English without talking about accent. You will have an accent for the rest of your life. If you came here for accent erasure and say, I, I never want to have my accent, this is the wrong place. Because a number of factors. There are numerous studies at the NIH, for example, that said if you learn a language after you're about eight or 10, you're always going to have a little bit of flavor in your spoken English. You always have a little bit of an accent. So if we agree we're all over eight to 10 years old, anybody under eight or 10? No, all right. So we'll proceed on the premise that you will have an accent forever. And that's another important caveat coming, which is that's fantastic news. Americans adore accents. We love them. We automatically assume you're smart. We assume you're multicultural. We assume you're brave. We assume you are um, so, just, so much more worldly than we are because of your accent. So even if I could erase that accent for you and say, here, sure, talk like a Hollywood star, I wouldn't give it to you. Because I think there are so many benefits of how you speak that that's, that's such a, a, a glorious attribute for you that I wouldn't want to remove that. So you should embrace your accent and say, good, I have an accent. And a number of people will say, ah, it's my accent. And it never is the accent. It's these other set of things that we're listening for. So it, you will always have one. I'm going to encourage it. And there are, yeah, I will give you hints as to what we need to hear in addition to your accent. So we're not erasing your accent. We're just augmenting it, particularly when speaking to Americans. All right. Now, a few other things about accent. I'm going to pause for a second. Molly, are we all right with light if I stay up here and this is dark? Okay. So, a few other things about accent. I have been teaching science communication for, oh my, uh, going on 14 years now. And kind of parallel and before that, I had started as an actor. And I had a teacher in California, and her name was, was Edith Skinner. And Edith Skinner is the grandmother of standard spoken English. 
American Standard English was taught by her. She wrote countless books, and that was kind of what everybody studied with Edith Skinner if they wanted to become an actor, and I studied with her. So partly the way I'm trained is to have a neutral American accent. Now, even in America, we have multi-accents. We have a Northeast accent, we have a Southern accent, clearly. We have Northern accents, but I was actually born in California, where even in America, it's the land of no accent. So I was born in a place that had no accent. I was taught to have no accent. And then I went into a field for a while that kind of encouraged no accent. So I speak the most boring English possible. If you listen to the way I speak, it's just, it doesn't have any accent. It's, it's standard. It's almost not radio quality, but it's, it's radio-like and that it's, it's, um, it could, it's almost like you can't place it. It's just kind of neutral. And I would kill for an accent, believe me. If I had a North Carolina, Carolinian accent, ah, see, my career would skyrocket. <laughs> and British, oh my word, I, I'd be an international phenomenon if I had a British accent. But I don't, I have a normal, standard American accent. So another way to perceive this seminar is kind of what I'm trying to, if we meet halfway, meaning my pure American standard one, and your accented English, we should be just right. That's kind of a nice meeting ground between the two. Now, so accent, it's all yours. It's our gift. We say, fantastic, where are you from? We love accents. Another thing we will give to you, it's a donation on our part, is grammar. Written English has very strict rules, unbelievably strict rules, as Virginia can attest. If it doesn't matter if you've been here two weeks, we expect the written word to be absolutely perfect. You, no misspellings, no grammatical errors, but in spoken English, we're completely flexible with that. And perhaps because the rules, I'm not sure, but perhaps because the written rules are so strict, we say, you know, when you speak it, ah, don't worry about it. We have accents, as I mentioned, within the, the country. There's old jokes saying, you say potato, I say potato. Ah, you know, let's call the whole thing off. So it's, there's this um, acceptability that we pronounce things differently. And that also has to do with grammar. When I wrote that book that Molly mentioned, speaking about science, I remember one draft I wrote, and the data is significant. And it came back with a huge red circle around it and said, no, 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 no. It's not data is, you fool. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, yes, you're right, correct. It's data are. Data is plural. It's datum is. Datum is the singular. And there are other examples. I heard one yesterday, glia, the cell, the glia cell. Everybody says the glia cell, but it's glia cells, meaning glia is plural. It's glium is the singular, but nobody says that. And nobody says the data are. We might, it might pop out, but most of the time, typical standard English is the data is significant, the data is relevant. So we almost, not quite on purpose, but it's standard to have grammatical errors when we speak. Another case in point, our current president, politics aside, always speaks with poor grammar. And it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> if nothing else, he has mastered the fact that grammar is not what people are looking, listening for. 
So we have already said, you know, if you mix up the grammar, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal to us. Now, again, if you write it and you mix it up when you write, whew, that, you know, they'll say, oh, this is horrible, no visa. <laughs> and it's, it's really kind of unfair that we're so strict on one and so flexible on the other one. But you need to be aware that for grammar, for example, it doesn't matter. Another one would be verbs. This, you, you don't have to know this or even memorize this, but you, it might be assumed that English is a romance language that is a Latin-based language, and it's not. English is a German-based language, and that doesn't really matter much, except that German is a noun-based language. And here in America, in English, we don't conjugate our verbs. There's one I can think of. I am, you are. I am, you are. It's the, the to be verb. That's the only one that we conjugate. Every once in a while, we'll add an S on one. But for the most part, the rest, we all leave alone. I swim, you swim, we swim, they swim. Eh. It's fine. It's always the same. So we don't conjugate our verbs. I also speak Spanish. I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. And when I speak Spanish, I almost have to take off my noun brain and put in my verb brain because all the meaning in Spanish and Portuguese and Italian in French is with the verb conjugations. And then it would be yo nado, tu nadas, el nada, I, meaning I swim, you swim, they swim. You change the verb no matter who you're speaking to in a Latin-based language. But in English, we don't. We don't change it at all. That means that we're waiting for the nouns. All our meaning is gathered from nouns. We don't even care if you say, you know, I'm going to swim to Whole Foods to buy broccoli. We go, okay, I know what you mean. <laughs> but if you said, I'm going to swim to Whole Foods and buy broccoli, we go, wait, uh, okay, I'll translate the verb. I'll give you a, I know what you meant. But what did you buy? What was that thing at the end that you were going to buy? Because that, to an American ear, to a native English speaker's ear, that's where all the information is. It's always, always in the nouns. In fact, it's so commonly in the nouns that when we write a phrase in English and we want you to know that it's the verb, we italicize it. So we, we highlight the verbs and say, no, this time, just this once, we're gonna highlight the verb. Um, last example again from our president, only because it was, uh, I remember it being transcribed in the Washington Post. It said, um, Iran, was a threat, Iran will be a threat, is a threat, Iran will be a threat. And when that was transcribed, it was italicized in the verbs, was, is, will be. Because typically, we don't care about them. That's not what we listen for. We don't listen much for verbs. Now, of course, there's present tense and past tense and various types, but once we get that timing, we go to the nouns. The nouns carry all the information. And that does mean for you that if you mix up a verb or get the, the, the tense wrong, it doesn't really matter to us. We're not really paying attention for that in terms of understanding, okay? Another fun thing that I've learned as I'm getting more and more fluent in Spanish is in Spanish, the vowels are sacred. You never drop a vowel in Spanish. 
you drop a lot of consonants. <laughs> they don't particularly care about those. In fact, um, if I can say this story quickly, um, there's, now that, that's too long a story to get into. <laughs> but they, they, when they drop, when they condense things, which they're famous for and dropping off the ends of words, they never drop off the vowels because that's where you know the tense. It means who are you speaking to, who are you speaking about. That's all changed in the vowels. So the vowels are super critical in Latin-based languages. In our language, it's not at all. People ask me all the time, is it ligand or ligand? I go, I don't know, doesn't matter, it's a vowel. Is it either or either? I don't know, doesn't really matter. So that pronunciation aspect of vowels is really secondary to us. We don't care about vowels. They carry no meaning for us. So you can blow the vowels and say mesenchymal or mesenchymal. We go, okay, potato, potato, it's fine. Don't, don't stress over the vowels because we don't, we're not even listening for them. You can imagine what's on the other side, though, comparatively, right? when we get to it. So we will give you vowels, we'll give you your accent, grammar, verbs, all those, because that's not what carries meaning for us. Another interesting thing, my wife, who is, is Spanish, she um, still struggles, she's been here 30 years, and she still struggles with pronouns. And we have a cute little white dog, he's a boy. And she always say, you know, the dog, she peed in your shoe. And, I, and then she corrects herself, and she goes, no, 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 I'm sorry, I meant the dog he. And I said, I don't care about the pronouns. He did what? He peed in my shoe? <laughs> So she stops, and uh, uh, those of you who may be from Asian backgrounds also sometimes stop and go, oh, I missed the pronoun, or I got it wrong. Let me go back and correct it. And I don't, we don't care. I, I meaning Americans as well. I'll interchange those. We don't care about the pronouns. We give you those. We'll change them in our mind. I know she meant he. I was obsessed about where he <laughs> went to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and how come it was my shoe and not her shoe? So that's where the pronouns don't matter to us. Those are very, we're very forgiving about those. We'll, we'll translate them instantaneously. Another example, a gentleman said, my grandmother, he retired. He said it just like that. My grandmother, he retired. And then he went back and he said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's not he, it's supposed to be she. And I said, yes, I know. But what was that word you said at the end? Because that's the one I was confused about. Was it retired, meaning doesn't work, retired, went to bed early, or retarded, meaning she's a little slow? So the ends typically carry a lot more meaning for us in those nouns. That's not a noun, retired. But the pronouns are, are really insignificant to us. We're very, very flexible with the pronouns. And one last thing I want to point out, which is pauses. I think typically to native English speakers typically think that non-native English speakers are going too fast. There's, it's very rare when we say, can you please speed up in your speaking? So it's typically the opposite. And there might be a lot of psychological reasons why we do that, some of which, which I'll confess to myself, because as I mentioned with Spanish, I think I'm cooler, <laughs> I think I'm more hip, I think I'm more fluent if I speak it quickly. And yet when I speak it quickly, everybody goes, what? Oh, shoot. 
you know, I spoil a perfectly good joke, you know, which I thought was very funny. And then they, you know, they say, well, what did you say? You know, oh, darn. So typically, fear not your pauses, as we sometimes say. Meaning, if there's a little bit of gap, if you speak slowly, that's to both of our benefits. You have more time to translate if you're trying to find words. And we have a better sense of what it is you are trying to say. I have never heard anybody go too slow, typically, unless they are, it's a matter of vocabulary. So if you're saying, you know, what is this called in English, that, that might slow things down a little bit. However, typically, if you stop, and this bears repeating as well, uh, I mean mentioning, is that the, the pause you might think you're uh, creating by saying, what is that called in English? is typically not a problem for us. We all have word retrieval issues. So I might not remember if it's called a, I guess it's a lectern, but you know, what that word is called, we will always, it's fine if you stop and go, um, what is that called? The thing. <laughs> and typically thing is fine. So if you are just, don't know what something is called, we're fine with that. However, if you say, if it looks like you don't know what you want to say about the lectern, then that becomes problematic. So it's not the vocabulary. We'll wait all day for you to go, you know, the, 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 oh, forget it. You know, the thing you stand in front of. Then we're, we're, we're completely fine with that. But the, what you want me to do with this, or do you want me to move it, or the, the, the point you're trying to make needs to be very clear, it's not necessarily what you call things. So there's the good news. These are all the things we donate to you. This is in a, if there was a clarity cup here on the floor, it's the things that I go, don't worry about that, don't worry about that, don't worry about that, don't worry about that. I, we're gonna donate all that to you. That's the good news, all right? Now, how much time do we have left? Uh, now we start the bad news. We have to start over here, of course, with now. Since it is how we absorb our information, every noun needs to be enunciated and, I will give you the code word, elongated. We count the syllables in a noun. That's how bad we are about nouns. Let me give you an example. Uh, these would be what nouns I mean. I want to identify the blank involved in the blank of inhibitory blank and their respective blanks. So without those words in between, residues, inter uh, interaction, receptors, ligands, I guess it is ligands. <laughs> um, th that's, without that, that is meaningless without those. So we almost need the, the, we are gathering those words as the nuggets of information. And when I mean elongating them, making sure that we hear each syllable of them, Let's use a word like this. Epidemiology is how it's pronounced. And an American ear has almost a metronome in their head. You know what a metronome is that pianists play to? It counts beats, music. And we count those in syllables. So this word for native English speakers, for Americans, is epidemiology. If I don't hear, how many syllables are in that, by the way? Seven. If I don't hear seven syllables, I'm confused. 
I immediately go, oops, I was born with a chip that says epidemiology has seven syllables. <laughs> and if I don't hear seven, I go, um, it's not epidemiology, it's gotta be something else. There's a problem, there's a problem. <laughs> because I am so noun dependent. So this is my lifeline, <laughs> this is my IV drip of how I get information. And if I hear epidemiology, I go, what? It sounded like this, wait, and then I go do a word search. If I don't hear seven, I say, it's like, sounds like epidemiology, but with six syllables. So I stop listening to you completely. And I'm sorry about that. I wish I didn't do that, but I do. If you go epidemiology, I go, uh, wait, wait, stop talking. And then I do the random access memory search and say it's close to epidemiological. No, no, it's not. Epidermis, epidermis, you work in the skin. You know, I, I go someplace else, and you don't want me to. So elongating those nouns becomes critical for you when you speak English. Critical. I'm going to divide that up. And you'll notice this in any dictionary. They either put a slash or a little dot. Any dictionary, and that's very helpful. Where they go, oh, this is supposed to have this many counts. And yet I can't tell you how many times I go, ooh, I heard six, five and a half syllables? Even six and a half? So we have to hear them all. And then an American goes, got it, no matter how you pronounce it. So it's not the pronunciation, it's the link. It's the link. Everything, I'm going to use this image a lot too. It's like sometimes if you spoke with chewing gum and you said epidemiology, it has to have that kind of uh, length to it. And I'm sure you're sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. I have to say that every time? Yes. Yes, epidemiology. It has to be that, that's the word. Now, a number of people will, will sometimes, let's use a different example. Let's use this one. How many syllables? Guess eight. So again, I'm, this word is meaningless to me until I hear eight syllables. It's pronounced neovascularization. Neovascularization. So I'll divide that up too. Okay. Now, curiosity. I uh, was working with a Japanese lady once, and she had a word very similar to this, and she would say neovascularization. Neovascularization. And she got the counts in, but she was syncopating the rhythm. And the curiosity of spoken English is you can say it quickly, but every syllable has to be the same length. You can say neovascularization quickly, but notice those are all the same. Or I can say neovascularization. All the syllables are the same. An American, once you start a pace, once you start at a certain pace, you have to finish that way. You can't say neovascularization or neovascular, uh, let me do the opposite. Um, ne what was the opposite? <laughs> neovascularization. That's awkward to us too. That's like, we, we, we can't get the rhythm of that. Let me finish this section and I'll get your question. 
So I have a fantastic tool for you. And those of you coming in, did you pass these around? There should be a two little, little containers of toothpicks floating around. Please make sure you have one. If not, you can use a pen cap. You can use your badge, your ID badge. And you're going to place it between your front teeth. Go ahead. Yes, I know. This is the silly part of the course. <laughs> where we hold the toothpick or the badge between our teeth. And this is going to create a barrier that we have to kind of work around. But in the effort to work around this barrier, we have to elongate the nouns. Are you understanding me okay? Yes. But I'm working really hard around this stupid straw that I have in my mouth. <laughs> and that's beneficial because I have to elongate my words to get it around it. So this word should be now me first and then you. Neovascularization. Mm, that is horrible. <laughs> I, I heard some, but it's hard when we're in a group. But see if you can mimic my pace and see if we can go at the same time. So it should be neovascularization. Much better, much better, good. Even, I will point out, the N at the end. Typically the ends of our words are, are supposed to, are the most important part. Particularly the last word of a sentence is the most important and also the ends of words. A lot of people might say, I'm, I hear you, but the ends of your sentence are disappearing. And that's because it's not getting the length that's needed. Listen to this version, neovascularization. Here I put almost a little n at the end. That's to make sure I get all eight counts in there. I can say near vascularization, but it sounds like that's seven, sort of. It sounds squished. And native English, I'm sorry, non-native English speakers to our ear, it sounds like you're squishing our language. <laughs> it sounds like you're, like you're compacting it and squeezing it in. And that depends on clearly where you're from. But to us, it sounds almost staccato, if you know that term from music. Staccato, and there's a note, and they put a little dot on top, and you mean you hit the note and get off. You hit the note and get off. And to our ear, we're like, no, it's legato, which are notes with that bar across. So you, everything has a little more flow to it, particularly in the nouns. Particularly in the nouns. So that, that was very good. Let's do that one one more time. Neovascularization. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Anybody work with that by chance? No, okay. If you did, you'd have to say it like that the rest of your life. Now, I'm sorry about that. I wish that science and engineering and computer science and, and I wish they had shorter names, but they don't. And since we're noun reliant and those are nouns, that's what we have to elongate in order to be understood. This is a list I've just grabbed. Most of these are from the biological sciences. So if you are in engineering or something else, you can pick a different one or pick one that might be temporarily. For example, you could use a correlation you might use. And this list is on your thing. So I'd like you to pick a word on the list, one that might be, it doesn't really matter which one it is. And the only thing I want you to do first is count the syllables. Them count, count them in your head or count them on your fingers or on your toes. 
Everybody got one? And then I want you to compare it to the next list that I'll put up here. Did you get it right? Is that, is there, is that how many you found in there? You will notice a couple of things. Typically, vowels, I said they're not important, they typically do not stand alone, except when they have a Greek root. The neos, the dias, those words, then we separate that extra little vowel, like neo vascularization. Got its own syllable, got its own count, got its own tick of the metronome, as did uh, the end syllable, shun. So, Ocean is the same beat. Those are the same beats. The, uh, for example, research. Search, look at all those letters in there. It's one beat. So typically the die us, is there one on here that besides neovascularization, is there a die of something or other? Uh, ep epidemiological, the eh there. So typically, we do not leave the vowels alone. They're always coupled with a consonant, typically, to count where that is. In fact, if you notice where those slash marks are, they're almost always around consonants, because that's one of the reasons we're so picky about consonants, is they help us count those beats. That's how we mark them, except in some rare occasions, where there's an E, an O, a, a dia, I just saw another one. Uh, Archaeobacterial. There's two of them that have separate little sounds in there with the vowels only. But typically not. Typically they're consonants that are helping mark those. So obviously we are consonant crazy. That's how we are listening. That's how we count. It's almost like we, we are counting, listening to the way you use your consonants, not the vowels. So those consonants must be ultra, ultra crisp. Now, we have a little problem with that now. So after we do elongated nouns, we have a problem, let's go back to this word, in that not only are consonants important, and I'll go through some of the highlights of them, there's one that we are enamored with, we are in love with. Anybody have an idea what our favorite, favorite sound consonant in the English language is? The, who said that? The R. It's the R. This one right here is my friend. He's our, this is our favorite sound in the English language. There is not, for your purposes, there is no such thing as a soft R. Every single R is, needs to be growled, needs to be roared. Sometimes I think it's like talking like a pirate. If you put a hand over one eye and say neovascularization, that's right. I have never heard too hard an R, ever. Now, there's even a part of America where they do not say their R's. So I need to point that out. Up in the Northeast, parts of around Boston, they do not pronounce their R's. They're very soft. They'll say, pock the ka and ha the yod. And we laugh at them because that's wrong. <laughs> so I'm not going to change theirs, but that's kind of an enclave of soft R's, and that's it's kind of become a joke. Typically, however, we roar our R's, and standard American English has a hard R. There is no soft one. So we would say, I would say, park the car in Harvard Yard. That sounds normal to me, but listen to all those R's in there. I sound like my little dog who's peeing on my shoe. 
It's like rah, 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 rah. Whoops. Oh, 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 oh. I think we're okay. Yep, we're still good. So to me, again, that's where it needs to be neovascularization. I almost lean on it a little bit. Put the straw in your mouth, please. And now say neovascularization. Now, the point also of the straw is take the straw out now. We'll do it one more time. And that same crispness, that same elongation, that same teeth quality that you used when you were chewing neovascularization, I want you to do without the straw now. So take it out, but keep that teeth sensation. Neovascularization. Neovascularization. Very nice, everyone. As a group, that was excellent. Very nice. So I hear, I heard eight, and I heard a hard R. And I'm like, fantastic. Green cards for everyone. Because that's how, that helps my understanding. I go, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Now, look back to that other list. Notice the word you may have picked. <laughs> Told you, it's our favorite. I was, this was recently confirmed by a speech pathologist who said not only is it our favorite sound, it's actually the most prevalent letter in English, which I didn't know, and I don't know quite how we count that necessarily, but it is apparently used more often than any other. And look just from my list, all but allele and diseases, oh, as in chymal, doesn't, has an R. So we are R crazy. So growl every one of them. There, is no, there should never be a soft one. In fact, there's some of them, like, uh, where's a, param, a prefrontal cortex. Hear that? Hear the way I say it. Prefrontal cortex. Can you kind of growl my R's? Now you say prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex. That's not bad. That's not bad. I heard two, at least a hard two and a half. So that's very good. That's right, it's that R, there's no such thing as a soft one. You see one, growl it. You see one, lean on it a little bit. And we'll go, that's good, now I understand. Very nice. Now, it's coupled with a slightly different consonant, which has a problem, which is the L. The L has little light wings on it. L's are always light and fluffy and easy. And you know that flower that there is around Easter time is called a lily. And we sing lullabies. Lullabies are songs you sing to children who get them to go to sleep. You would never say lullaby because the kid's going to wake up. <laughs> That's the last thing you want. You always want a lullaby. And the trick to L's is that they're always light. Always, always, always. They always have a ooh. It's like they have wings on it. And typically to our ear, particularly if they end with an L, we don't hear the, the air at the end of it that the metronome needs to count the syllable. So we'll hear a word like protocol, and we'll go, that's wrong. That's not enough air in the L. There's not enough length to the word. That word is protocol. See how I put a little whoop on the end of it? <laughs> so all L's have to have a whoop <laughs> at the end. Being a little silly, but that's, that's kind of what it needs that little air on it. The trick to L's, back to our straw, is that the tongue always touches the teeth, always, always, always. 
And typically when we hear swallowed L's or muffled L's or, or short L's, it's because the tongue is not touching the teeth. It's in the back of the throat, like protocol. You hear that? It's like I'm gargling. And it's protocol. And the tongue has to touch the teeth to give it that little oof. So to put the straw in your mouth, please. Let's use, uh, no, I'm bored with that word. Let's use allele. Let's use allele up there. Good, put the top strong, what's this called? <laughs> Toothpick straw in your mouth and say allele. allele. That's not bad. I heard uh, they kind of got the last one needed, got a little swallowed, so put allele. allele. Much better. Beautiful. Anybody work with alleles? No? No, yeah, a couple. Good. That's right. The rest of your life, you have to say alleles. Allele. There's almost like three syllables. It's, I put two, but it's almost three. We, there, you cannot over elongate these nouns. If you, it's far better to have it sound like three than it would be to sound like allele. I'm trying to cram it into one. Because that confuses us. We're always listening for those, the L's that got some wings, the R's that are hard. And look at this, all but, now we've hit almost everything except diseases on my list. I'm sure you've got your own. All right. So we have two favorite consonants. And we're going to add a few others because typically we don't hear them. And that would be the v sound of vascular, of viral vector, of vacuum. And typically we hear that as vacuum, or viral vector, or um, can, uh, what's another B word? I'll use this one. You know, vascularization. It sounds like a B sound. And if some of you are from a Spanish background, that's typically one that we go, oh, but because that's the same, a V and a B is the same sound or very similar sound in Spanish, and we don't hear the length of it. Some people from Indian backgrounds don't get that sound either. So that is almost like, watch how I make my Vs. I, put, I almost put my teeth on top of my lip, and I go, isn't that silly? It's kind of a stupid sounding sound. Okay, you can do that with a straw. And now say neovascular. Just say that much. Neovascular. That's good. Don't forget the R. Neovascular. Good. And in fact, that one's really difficult. Not only is there an L with wings and an R that's hard, it's in the same syllable. So to me, this word is neovascularization. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could do that again if I tried. <laughs> but that's what that word is to me. And if you leave any of those out, I go, mm, close, close. So most important, always, are the consonants. Secondly, are there R's? Go and circle them. Are there L's? Put little wings on them. If there's a V or a Z, those need to be elongated. There's a list. Uh, on, also on your charts, in your flip charts there, your handouts, of, they're called onomatopoetic words. Is that coming up next? Let me see there. That, this was, yeah, let's, well, let me go through these and then I'll, I'll show you the list coming up. Um, so let's, with our straw, back in our mouth, please. 
say viral vector. Ooh, not bad. See, that's one of my favorite words because it's got R's all over the place. It's got an L. It's got V's. This is like an impossible term. Anybody work with viral vectors? Possibly not. Fine. Viral vector. Very nice. Say taxation with the straw, please. Taxation. Ooh, that was good. Taxation. Taxation. Good, good. Don't forget the n at the end. Say taxation. Taxation. Good, much better. It has that extra little oomph to it. Say chromosome. Chromosome. Good, and pop the M. Ah, gotcha. At the end, the M has a M. See how I say chromosome? I open my mouth at the end and go M. It's cow-like. Chromosome. Good, excellent. It has that. It doesn't sound to my ear. That does not sound stupid. And I know it feels stupid <laughs> from your side, but it doesn't sound stupid for me. It sounds like say, oh, M. Nice, nice M's. So what you may feel is silly is just adding to the clarity cup. Because I go, oh, thank you. I need to hear those end consonants. Uh, say graduated. Graduated. And same with the D. D. Graduated. Graduated. Good. Very nice. Um, say wavelength. Wavelength. Oh, that's a, oh I heard some, some G's in there. Wavelength. Wavelength. Much better. Much better. Wavelength. Good. This one's also a good one because it's got B's and L's. And it starts hard. Wave. And then it goes nothing. Length. It's like disappears. Two parts to the TH sound while we're at it. We have a soft TH, what we call unvoiced, as in, as in uh, thing, thing, that thing. Hear my TH? It's a, there's nothing there. It's a, it's a leak in the tire. Someone poked a hole in a tire and goes, thing. Say thing. Thing. Very nice. Say it again. Thing. Thing. Good, good, good. And then we have a voiced TH that we add sound to it, like these. 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 Nice. So that has even kind of a sound to it. Just do the part. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that together would be these things. These things. <laughs> Almost. I hear kind of a, and the tendency sometimes, oh, I didn't rise up here. But if you had these, is that when the next TH comes, we want to put voice to that. We want to say these things. Hear, hear how I, that's, that's awkward for me? These things. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing that I'm giving voice to the second TH. And we want to remove it from that one. So it's these things. These things. Much better. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm sorry again that we have TH that are voiced and TH that are not voiced. And those we just have to memorize. Unfortunately, we just have to go, is this a voiced one or a not voiced one? But once you get it, those are those differentiations. I've added this slide with the uhs at the end. So use all very nicely. It said taxation, taxation, chromosome, good, graduated, good, 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 good. It needs that extra little uh. And typically in the dictionary, you will see it as an upside down e. And for some silly reason, that's called a schwa. 
It's a schwa in English. You don't have to know that. Except what it means is the uh sound. <laughs> so, and I've written it A-H because that's a little bit easier to, um, to, to uh, visualize, I think, that you're saying uh, not upside down E. That's just the phonetic symbol for it. So you would say uh, graduated, just a soft little uh at the end. On any D that ends, be very, all, typically when they end with consonants, not always, but typically there needs to be an uh at the end, particularly the does, ms, and the ends. All have a little uh at the end of it. Okay? So, I mentioned onomatopoeic words, and that's how you, sometimes you'll see this word as onomatopoetic words, those are, those are the same. And the fun thing about these words, and you have a list of them in your handouts, is that these are the words that sound like what they do. So if you get confused about, how am I supposed to say that sound? We're going to go to a word that reminds you of the sound. Famous examples would be, um, where's buzz? Buzz. A bee buzzes. So that when you say the word buzz, it can't go buzz. It buzzes because the bee's always doing this. And it is so the word is onomatopoeic because it goes buzzes. Say buzz. Now give it some z. Buzz. That's it. That's it. It needs that extra little length to the z's. Little length to the, let's use our term, our vacuum again. Vacuum is when you clean with a machine and it doesn't stop, does it? You don't vacuum. You vacuum. That's it. And so there that, therefore that sound, that V consonant, needs to be that long. Say, let's, let's accentuate. Say vacuum. Ah, oh, come on, come on, play with me. <laughs> vacuum. Right. So that's closer to my ear. Now let's say it normally, but don't shorten it too much. Say vacuum. That's it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It has that extra little length, and you must be, and you might be sitting there going, you, you're kidding me, Scott. I'm saying, nope. That sounds normal to me. Normal to me. So it's part of what you have to give to me because I am why? I'm consonant dependent. Why? It helps me count my syllables. Why? Because that's how I distinguish the nouns. Why? Because I'm a German-based language. Why? Because I get all my information from nouns. So there's this cascade of, of whys, which is why if I don't hear that V, I go, what? <laughs> and again, it's not very fair, but that's where that, that's how that uh, process occurs for us. That process is lengthy, and it's distinguishing many other, it, it highlights other important elements for us. So I love these. Um, if, if you have concerns about how you would say, oh, there's Lillian lullaby, those are light and easy. Um, typically, people don't have trouble with bubble. Say bubble. bubble. It needs to bubble like bubble. That's why the words in there, bubble. bubble. Yeah, typically bees, I have not found in, not in Russian or Indian, or not many cultures have, they either have a sound similar or that's not a hard one. It's also one of the first sounds a baby makes. It goes blah, 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 blah. So that seems to be one of the easier ones. Though, um, 
Say jagged. jagged. Yeah, D at the end. Jagged. jagged. That's it. That's it. Jagged. Good, good, good. So this list is helpful if you see a word and say how are the how long are those ends? Well, they're as long as a neon sign that glows all night long. So the ends are always long. Oh, speaking of which, that's one sound we haven't talked about, the NG. Meaning it's an ng. Mm. So you would never say the word is long. It's not long, because that makes it short. It's long. long. It's longer. Longer. Er, er, longer. All right, take your hand, put it over your eye. Longer. Say it again. Longer. Longer. Now, excellent. That's it. That's normal to me. That's just plain normal. Longer. longer. You're all being so gentle with the language, and I, I think that's very, I found that to be true everywhere, which is that. If non-native English speakers are very gentle with you, actually speak it more beautifully than I do. Because I growl it, I spit it, I chew it. I, I, it's a tea language, and this is from another, and this straw as well, from a wonderful voice teacher named Margaret Riddleberger, who I also studied with for years. And she, said, she spoke French, and she said, you know, French is, is a lip language. It's a beautiful, Clearly, I don't speak French. But I can fake it. <laughs> and if she said everything is just it's all right here in the lips. But English is a tea language. We chew everything. We just growl it. And that's a good thing about this too, is that reminds you to just bite it. It's like eating an apple and spitting it on the ground. <laughs> and I have never said, can you be more aggressive? I've always said be more aggressive. I've never heard anyone be too aggressive with English particularly American English. So it can be much more aggressive. That reminds me of something. Some of it might be that you're hesitant because of vocabulary or for speaking up in a foreign culture. I, I completely understand that. I respect that. When I go to Spain, I'm a little hesitant at first. But the, it's almost like a swimming pool that you kind of have to just dive into. If you are more aggressive with it, we immediately understand you better. As opposed to saying, well, when I'm really, really comfortable, then I'll be aggressive. But in that meantime, until you're maybe here for years and years and years, that, that leap doesn't happen. If you make that leap immediately, your understanding will quadruple the minute you walk out the door. If you're just a little more aggressive with the language. Just spit it out a little bit more. I don't know why I thought of this, but this comes up a lot. Uh, those of you who may be from Asian backgrounds, we, by the way, are not, we're not pitch dependent. And I was just at City of Hope, a cancer center in Los Angeles two weeks ago. And one gentleman said, I'm concerned that my speech, when I speak, is monotone. And then he was, he was quite candid about expressing that because in Chinese, the pitch determines the meaning, like vowels do in Latin-based languages, like nouns do in English. Pitch makes a huge difference in Chinese. So if you say ma or ma, it changes the difference, right? Anybody speaks Chinese? Oh, good. So as I understand it, one's mother and one's horse, right? 
and, and you don't want to mix those up. <laughs> but yet when he came to speak English, he was pitch careful. Because he thought if he said, uh, oh, oh. he thought if he said taxation or taxation, it would change the meaning. And that's understandable because if you come from a pitch-based language that you have to be careful, careful which way you go, up, down, or straight, or neutral, then that would change the meaning. But to us, it doesn't matter. There is no, we're not pitch dependent. <laughs> it, doesn't it doesn't alter the meaning. It does if it's a question or not. So if you want to say, um, is this the Department of Taxation? You would give it a little lift, but that's the question element. It's not the word. So you could say Department of Taxation or Department of Taxation. It's the same meaning. So typically, you can also be a little not only aggressive, you can be more expressive. You don't have to be uh, pitch worried about, oh, is it going to change something? Because we don't, we don't really pay attention to that unless it's a question. I jumped ahead of myself there, but I thought that was an interesting addition that I just learned a few weeks ago. Um, so the cr consonants need to be crisp. Crisp and chewed and mean and aggressive and disgusting. <laughs> so that, that will help us hear them better. Typically, we hear them as too soft, and we don't hear them long enough. I would like to point out that I think acronyms need a little brief attention only because they've taken over the world and that there are so many acronyms that we have forgotten what they stand for. And that is that if there's a list, such as this, I just pulled some, we have forgotten that at one time that actually stood for National Human Genome Research Institute. And that would, there would be dots after each of those. Somehow it became fine to take all the dots out, but then when we say it, we go, NHGRI, and we try to condense it into a single word, but it was never meant to be a word. It stands for an entire institution, and it has a dot after each. So my big hint about acronyms is to put the dots back in. Remember that each one stands for a word, not on its own. And I particularly like this one. It's a protein down here called IGT2B7. And this poor gentleman, he was from India, and he had the hardest time because there are also IGT2B5s, and there's an IGT2B3. So the poor guy was working with three very difficult acronyms, but they had to be spit out as if it was, I don't, know, I don't even remember what it stands for anymore, IGT2B7 is what it needs to come out of. Yeah, fine, please, say it after me. Say IGT2B7. IGT2B7. Yeah, that's right. And if you work with long proteins or long names or acronyms, I'm sorry about that, but we need to put those dots back in. Remind us that they stand for words, not IGT2B7, which confuses us. So that was just a quick one, though, about acronyms, that we tend to squish those, even Americans do. But we need to kind of lengthen, elongate those as well. Now we come to a fun part called sentence structure. And there is some overlap with the way you write English and the way you speak English here. When you write English, there's, like I said, very strict rules about it. And there's something that we call 
Well, let me, let me give you an example. This is probably the best way to show this. If I said to you or wrote to you, I went to the store to buy broccoli. And if you told that to me, said, Scott, I went to the store to buy broccoli, I'd go, fantastic, good for you. I, if you said I, I um, paddled to the store to buy broccoli, I'd go, fine. You went and you got broccoli. Because the meaning is all at the end. It's the noun at the end that I know is the important thing. Right? Now, you can add to that. You can add one more thought. You can say, I went to the store to buy broccoli, and then I stopped by the dry cleaners to pick up my shirts. Now, in English, by the structure of our language, you're telling me, okay, I said broccoli, but more important than broccoli are shirts. Okay? Now I'm going, fine, fine, I can handle two. I can say broccoli, no, not as important as shirts. And then I'm fine. However, if you add, I went to the store to buy broccoli, and then I stopped by the dry cleaners to pick up my shirts, and after that I went for a swim, I'm confused. I don't know that that sentence is ever going to end. So what, what this means to me is priority. I can handle one thought, I can handle two thoughts, and then you have to stop. And the writing is the same. They, in writing they call that a run-on sentence when it goes on and on and on. And to an American English, native English speaking ear, that's deeply confusing to us. And I know in some cultures it's a sign of, of elegance, it's a sign of education, that the thoughts don't really end sometimes, they loop around and they continue. But in our language, it's deeply confusing because of the structure. We're taught that the end is the most important, priority number one. If you change that ending, Fine, I can erase one and put in another one, but then you cannot put in a third, confusing. Because now I don't know the priorities anymore. I don't know, okay, so what's so, just start again. What's important, broccoli, shirts, or swimming? <laughs> because I, you've confused me with now what becomes a list. So when you speak, also our president does a very good job of this. He's very good at short sentences. He's mastered the short sentence. Meaning that you, you can put one thought and then couple it with another, but then you have to stop. And it's true in your writing as well. We call those conjunctions. And here are some famous ones. And, but, or, so. And a good rule of thumb is you can have a thought, use one conjunction, one conjunction only, and then you can have another thought. You have to think of Americans as being a little slow. They can only handle two thoughts at a time. It's not true intellectually, but it's true based on our language. Our language is structured that way. We can have this or that, or this and that. If you say and, 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 or those conjunctions start to spill out, and I'll show you another list of them. Look how long this is. So you can pick one. You can pick your favorite one, but only one. It's deeply confusing if you use the ands and the howevers, or the on the contrary instead of or incidentally, um, less. Those confuse us if there's two or more conjunctions. Just like in writing, they'll say, Can you, this is a run-on sentence, break into two. And that's just the way our language is, is structured. It's, it's structured that way because we're taught the end is the most important. So in terms of priority, 
That becomes broccoli's the most important. It's saying everything, the most important part of that sentence is broccoli. Oops, no, I'm gonna change my mind or add to it once and once only, shirts, and then that's it. Otherwise, my language chip just kind of shuts off. It goes, well, when you're done, let me know. Because maybe after swim, it's mow the lawn. And then where am I gonna be? <laughs> then I have no idea what's important. So that's what typically happens to us. We, we structure it in twos. And that's, I'm gonna blame it on this guy, but clearly not only. And the reason I'll, this man is William Shakespeare, and he's our most famous writer in English. And I studied him in London for a year as a performer. And they taught us an interesting little trick, which was incredibly useful, but it also applies to how the language is structured, which is that if you take a stanza, and I've written this from one of his most famous plays, Hamlet, and they would say, here's the way it's written, without the underlines, I put the underlines in. And then they would tell us, okay, the last word in the sentence, underline it or circle it. Okay, fine. And so it would become question, suffer, fortune, trouble, sleep, and shocks, consummation, sleep, rub, come, coil, respect, life. And then, then they'd say, now read just those terms. I'd say, all right. Question, suffer, fortune, troubles, sleep, end, shocks, consummation, sleep, rub, come, coil, respect, life. And they said, and that. Just those end words is the gist of the whole speech. And this would work time after time after time. And I was like, well, son of a gun, isn't that a neat thing? Now, we have since shrunk our sentences because Shakespeare was crazy about metaphors on top of similes, on top of other metaphors, on top of other imagery. Kind of went on. But so we've condensed the sentence length. But we have kept the fact that the end is the most important. That's where we get the meaning of our, this is structural, not so much punctuation, but that end, has, it's been 400 years plus now that the ends are the most important. So if you keep changing the end, back to the conjunctions, if you keep changing the end, I get confused. It's like I'm saying, okay, I'm gonna listen to the ends only, but if you keep giving me a bunch of them, I go, hmm, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. I hear the words, but I don't understand. So that, I'm going to blame it on him a little bit. But if we add to our clarity cup the short sentences with strong endings, both in terms of taxation, the actual sound, and also that word, that's much more helpful to our understanding. Back to that other example. This is true in writing as well. If you say, I am Going, I'm going to the store to buy broccoli, and after that, I'll go to the dry cleaners to get my shirts. Typically, that next sentence has to do with either shirts or what happened after the dry cleaners. It's no longer about broccoli. So it is part of our prioritization that once you move on, we expect the next thought to be related to that last one or typically another paragraph. So, okay, now I'm done with that, with the shirts. I'm now going to change paragraphs, change subjects. So we use it in that terms, that regard as well. So that's the things you can give to us. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on cultural expectations because this is kind of the more fun part of the seminar as well, which is that we have 
some that I, you might be aware of, but they are worth repeating because it affects our communications with each other. And the first is that we have a set of code words. And this is a lot of fun. I, I know from my Spanish learning that when I could separate the words that were important from the words that weren't important, the language was a lot easier to understand and a lot more fun. When I could separate the si como nos and the uh, claro que si's from the other stuff, I went, oh, I know, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That's just a code word. And we have a gazillion of them in English as well. We should take a look at them. For example, these words as greetings. Hi, hey, what's new, what's up, everything okay, how you been, how's it going, how's it, how you doing, how was your weekend? What does all that mean? Hi. <laughs> That's all. As you can separate those greetings from a real conversation. To the point, and we, I get this question a lot, what if your, your, uh, one of your teachers comes in, or a, a, a PI, or a, some, one, of your, one of your mentors says, how was your weekend? What do they expect to hear? How your weekend was, or fine? They want to hear fine. To the point that if I say, if, if I asked Molly, I'd say, Molly, how was your weekend? She would answer, fine. And I'd say, no, how was your weekend? I would literally have to repeat myself if I meant it. So these are code words that mean just, it's just a greeting. We expect a reply to this. And it doesn't matter what it is. It is not logical. You can say, how's your weekend? Sure. Fine. You can say, um, um, how's it going? Oh, no, I'm going to answer that one. You can say, what's new? All right. <laughs> What's new? All right. That doesn't make any sense. Because it's not, it's code. It's saying, this is how we start the conversation. And if you can start isolating those from the meat of the conversation, the, the content, it'll be a lot more interesting to you. I remember a horror story of a, of a gentleman who came in once and he said his boss would greet him every Monday with, did you publish yet? <laughs> and the poor guy was ashen. He would, he would dread Mondays. Because he'd go, he's going to ask me, he's going to ask me, I publish it. And I said, is he American by chance? And he said, yeah, he is. I said, I think he's probably asking, saying this. He's basically saying hi. <laughs> and he, he, he couldn't believe that for a while. And I said, let's practice something. The next time, the next time you go in on Monday, say, yeah, sure. So he tried that, went in. So did you publish yet? He said, yeah, sure. The, the boss kept walking, went and sat down at his desk. So he clearly hadn't meant it, but this poor gentleman thought that he had. So those initial greetings, those conversation starters, one need a response, and they can vary. It's a lot of fun to just walk around campus and go, oh, that was a new one. <laughs> to see if you can kind of tune into this is how we begin a conversation, and this is even more interesting, the things we say in the middle, which is all the time. Right, uh-huh, yeah, wow, really, okay, gotcha, sure. And if you say, you know, I, I really, um, I, I just published a paper last week, I go, really? It doesn't mean I doubted you. <laughs> It doesn't mean, you go, yeah, no, really, I did. <laughs> Honest. It just, it's, it's, a, it's a filler, it's a code word for saying I'm paying attention, I'm following. 
So these don't need, you probably know this, but it does bear in mind that you don't, these, these are our way of saying, showing that we are listening to you. And they're not meant to be replied to. If you want to show off how fluent you are, you can use any of these for a greeting and any of these during conversation. And you sound particularly American. And then, of course, there's a group at the end. And again, you can mix and match these. You can say, you know, take care, sure. It doesn't really matter. You're now saying, we're going to start the conversation. Code words for, I'm paying attention inside the conversation. And code words for, we're now ending this conversation. And when you start to kind of decipher those as basically meaning hi, uh-huh, and bye, <laughs> it makes the rest of the content a lot easier to follow when you're not trying to pick each individual phrase out. This is very cultural as well. In this country, as you probably have known and, and noticed, we stress 90% eye contact. We are a group of starers. <laughs> and I apologize for that. It might make you uncomfortable. We do not mean it that way. I know that if I go to foreign countries, I have to be careful because I'm, I know that can, can be seen as disrespectful. But from our perspective, it is a sign of respect. It's saying, you know, I care enough to, about what you think and say to look at you. But we expect the same in response. That's very important when we are interacting and part of the communication is if you look at me and say, I went to store to buy broccoli, and don't look at me to say that, I, I have a hard time understanding. It's part of the connection aspect of conversation. And the more you can think of eye contact, eye contact, eye contact, the better. Because we are judging you, regrettably, we're judging you by a number of things which have nothing to do with vocabulary. One of them is your eye contact with us. And there's another one coming up which is even more important. And the other one is a firm handshake. And a lot of people ask, but even for genders, what if, what if I'm a woman? Or what if I'm shaking hands with a woman? We expect that to be firm no matter what. No matter what. So it should be super, it should be almost as, oh, very nice. Even harder, squeeze it. Yes, good, good for you. It's almost like we literally have to shake somebody's hand. Good, good. You guys are great. Even harder. Good, good. And without contact, thank you, I appreciate it. So we, we are judging a lot by a firm handshake, eye contact, and then lastly, something so important that it belongs now in our clarity cup which is that it's also unfair of us, but we are judging you by your volume. We are a culture of loud people, as I'm sure you've noticed. And when we go overseas, we're known as loud Americans. And we kind of expect that in return. So much so that if you say, I went to the store to buy broccoli, and then I went to get my shirt, we think there's something the matter. We are dubious of your work. We don't take your, your, your studies or your presentation seriously. It's completely unfair. And I have never, ever, ever heard a non-native English speaker speak too loudly. So our 
antenna, our threshold for volume is set way off the scale. And that's unfair, but you need to know that, that when speaking to Americans, you basically need to scream at them. It's like considering they're deaf. <laughs> they're deaf and can only handle two, two subjects in a sentence, and that's it. <laughs> and your communication will be infinitely better based on that. So may I use you for an example? Can you tell me your name? Can you tell me your name in the paint? My name is Natalia. Natalia? Okay. On a scale of 1 to 10, Natalia, what volume was that for you? If you were a, a volume button and it went from 1 to 10, what was that from your perspective? A 7. A 7? You know what I heard? About a 4. I heard about a 4. I mean, I heard her, but I was like, I think she said Natalia. So I had to kind of, I had to kind of lean forward and work at it. Now, in your scale of seven, now tell me your name like a nine. My name is Natalia. <laughs> Good. Good. Good for you. I heard a six. <laughs> Not quite. That, you did a very nice job. Thank you. But my, our ears are so attuned to a different level of, of frequency, a different volume that you need to know that because otherwise we go, it's almost like we're, that's part of the what factor, that we're going, what? And you may say the word long, you may say the R's, and if you don't say it loud enough, we go, I'm sorry, neovascular or what? <laughs> and it's really unfair of us, but we are, think of us as deaf. We just don't quite, there's, a, there's a, an acceptable range of volume that you need to be aware of. Can you imagine? the benefits when you are interviewing, when you're going outside for jobs, if you are just a little bit louder. And that's a good way to think about it. It's not necessarily to thank you again, to jump from a, a, a seven yours to a nine yours, but just kind of go, you know what? I'm talking to Americans. I just need to crank it up a little bit. I just need to turn up that volume. I need to elongate those vowels. They're fine with the time that it takes. And we are. Remember that pause list back to Let's go back. Yeah. Remember the pauses over here? If you are louder, if you elongate, yes, it will take more time. But we're fine with the pauses. We appreciate them. We're getting used to your accent. We're getting used to your mannerisms. We're getting used to the way you communicate. So it's worth the benefit to say, oh, but I'm going to bore them. Never. That's not what's boring. What's boring is when we don't understand you and we go, you know, I'm just going to answer some email <laughs> on my Blackberry. So it's, that's not what's boring. The boring is not the speed at which things come. It's the, the engagement at which things are shared. It's that clarity cup. All right? So volume has to go on the your side, what you give to us. I have never heard anyone be too loud except my mom. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> my, 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 uh, <laughs> my mother was just staying in my house and she, I can still hear her <laughs> but she's very engaged and very enthusiastic and she's the only one who's like mom turn it down a little bit but everybody else kind of sounds like particularly if they're non-native English speakers that's a little too soft so we'll give you the, the accent and grammar and verbs and vowels and pauses and pronouns which is off that list for some reason 
If you, in return, elongate your nouns. Remember, you're gonna count the syllables first. Just make sure, particularly your work words. That would be my major suggestion to you is the words you use every single day, make sure you're spitting them all out at the right length. Look for R's, look for L's, look for those V's and Z's and crisp consonants. We want to speak in shorter sentences, just like when we write, short sentences with very strong endings. Remember, the ends is kind of where we're putting all, most of our weight. Not always, but almost, almost always we kind of, ex yeah, I was going to say always. Almost, we expect the end to carry the bulk of the meaning. And if not, we stress it differently, or we, if we're, we're, and we're writing, we'll italicize it to say, oh, usually the end, but not this time. And then, of course, volume. Now, some things you can do immediately when you leave here. One, the toothpick is my gift to you. You may take that with you. I would suggest you put it in your car, and you can hum, you can sing, you can listen to the radio, and then repeat what you hear with the straw in your mouth to get used to chewing the language a little bit more. There's a fantastic reference, which is, which is National Public Radio. They speak gorgeously. And the best part about National Public Radio is they have foreign correspondents. A gentleman named Veer Singh comes to mind. He's from New Delhi. And he still has an accent, but he has mastered the things that we need to hear. He speaks very slowly. He elongates. He still has an accent. You can tell he's Indian. But he is very, very clear when he speaks. There's another lady. Um, who was, uh, I believe she's of Chinese descent because she was reporting on Burma. I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. But the, the foreign correspondents are fantastic to listen to because they have not lost their roots or their nationality or their accent, but they have embraced what Americans need to hear. In fact, if you think about this whole course, again, not as what you need to do, but what I need to, to, be, under, for you, to be understood, for you to be understood, that's perfect. Think of it as my fault. These are my faults. <laughs> now, you can help me out on some of them. Um, so I love National Public Radio, a great place to practice. You can say, I'm Nick Fialulu from Nicosia. Whenever they say their names, just repeat after it. If you walk in or take a bus, then when you're walking from the bus stop to your office, just or your, your cubicles, classes, just it looks like I just had a cup of coffee, doesn't it? I just, I've just been to Starbucks, that's all. So the straws are great, the, the picks are great, a pen cap, anything that reminds you about the tea. And you can listen to national public radio or repeat it as you're going. There are free MP3 files on my website, premierpublicspeaking.com. Notice that this is also in your handout, but notice that Premier has an E in it at the end. Kind of the French spelling, because I speak French. So well. um, and there's a particular one, this is mainly about speaking about science, but there's a chapter title called Delivery, which would be of use to you, Delivery. And you can just download that one. You can download the whole thing if you want, but there's one chapter that particularly pertains to this class. There is a book, there's also a chapter, I'm not pushing the book at all, but there's a chapter called Delivery on that, and maybe the library has it. And most importantly is we need to start practicing. The best way for you to say, well, what about my case, or with my words, or given my background, what are you not hearing? 
And the best way to do that is with small group sessions. We have some this afternoon, we have some the next few days. Those are probably booked up for now, but we can do other ones. We can arrange lunchtime sessions where we just sit around and talk about the difficulties of speaking English. So it, hopefully, and Molly's done a beautiful job of this in Virginia as well, of setting up that this, this is not just an intervention where we say, you know, talk better, good luck, but that there are ongoing support systems. So I would check with both of them to see what we can do. But that's the best. If you, is anyone attending a small group session here the next few days? Okay. I will very briefly go through what we were going to accomplish in those. And so I don't want to take the time, too much of everyone's time. But this is beneficial for those of you who are not taking a small group session in terms of content. And I've outlined it in three forms of vocabulary that we are likely to use. And the first one is what I call an American cocktail party. And the first set of vocabulary that's helpful to look at is, and the cultural expectations are, how do I say my name the clearest? What do people care about? What do they want to know? Where do, what's too much information? What's not enough information? What are those parameters of when I speak outside my field? Let me look at, have I done that here? Yeah. So this is typically what we want to know. And this would be true even if I don't see you later. So if you go have a cup of coffee someplace, they're all going to say, what's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? How long have you been here? You know why we ask that question? How long have you been here? So we know what vocabulary to use. If you say you've been here a month, I say, have you found an apartment? You okay with the bus system? If you say you've been here a couple of years, I, you know, I say, how about those Durham Bulls? And we start talking baseball. So I have a different vocabulary based on what you answer. The last two I want to point out is that, again, a cultural reference. We do not mean that disrespectfully. We ask about your family not to pry, but just to get to know you a little bit. So it's always good to have some kind of response to that, because we, most Americans will ask. And even if you just say, well, I have a brother in Beijing, that's fine. We just need to know that you have family and we want to hear a little bit about them. If you are uncomfortable about sharing something, family-based, pick something else in the family. Pick um, uh, where you have cousins or something. But it's always good to have some kind of response to that because culturally we, we expect one as we also expect hobbies. In fact, that will easily come up. So what did you do this weekend? First answer is fine. But no, I said, no, what did you do this weekend? We expect you to say, ah, I went and saw a movie. I, I read books. I, I played soccer with my kid. So we, we expect you to share that. Again, if it's not safe, emotionally safe, you don't have to share that instance, but share something. Share something that's not work-related. That's kind of a, a cultural expectation outside of our work environment. Then there's something that I call the um, elevator speech, which is typically about our work, but to superiors. That's a different set of vocabulary, a different language. So we're no longer just dealing with the world. We're now dealing with people who know about our field, but they're higher ups. They're, they're, they are superiors. And we practice as if we are, you get locked in an elevator with the, the head of the president of Duke University. And you go, uh, what do I say? 
And this is kind of an outline of stuff that we would expect. I mean, we still want to know your name. Excuse me, I, this is a science example. That, that maybe your mentor would, would be here, what your work is trying to do, what's your specific project, very cultural. We expect here in America that you have a contribution to the big picture. We don't want to just hear that you are working on HIV vaccines, and that's what the lab is doing, and stop. We want to know what are you doing in that. We kind of expect that. We, we assume that you have an integral, integral role to play, but we want to know what that is. We also want to know how it's going, typically. However, oddly enough, you work your whole life for some kind of data and results and papers or publishing or, or programs or whatever the field is, and typically the superiors don't care much about that. So that's not for how's it, the day-to-day, -day, the granular level, the, the detail, they don't care about. They want to know about the bigger picture, how do you fit in? Curiosity about this one. In our culture, if, who's the president of Duke? Richard Broadhead. What's his last name, Rock? Broadhead. Broadhead, okay. If I was in an elevator with Richard, Doctor? Dr. Richard Broadhead, who would be, whose job would it would be to speak first? Dr. Broadhead's or mine? Who says Dr. Broadhead? Who says me? In our culture, it's me. Isn't that interesting? It's the lesser, the lower statue, the, the small visiting lecturer <laughs> who should instigate the conversation. And if he's busy, if he's on his Blackberry on the phone or talking to somebody, of course I don't bother him. But it would be my job to say, oh, I hear you're running this joint. Because from his perspective, it would be almost um, uncomfortable for him to start the conversation. And in some cultures, that's seen as opposite. But in this culture, typically it's the, the, the lower person if we categorize people by, by rank. It's a little unfair, and I don't really mean by, you know, what's your, your status necessarily. But the, the, the lower person would address first. And that's completely acceptable, and in fact, it's re almost required. Isn't that curious? And then there's one more thing, which would be just kind of a, an update about your work if you have those down to the nitty gritty level, the people, your peers, the people who know the most about your work. That's a separate, a third set of content and vocabulary. People who know all the, the ins and outs of what you do. And that's gonna be a separate set of, of um, terms. And a little bit, the, the focus there is more on being really detailed and kind of on the, um, uh, kind of on the, the here's, the, here's my problems, almost on the problem level. Okay, here's, here's the challenges I'm facing. So those of you who have a small group, those are the things we're gonna go through. We're gonna go through all three of those. And those of you who don't, be aware of which, when you're speaking outside of this room, or if you're off campus, what's expected. If you see, bump into a superior or another professor someplace and you're, and you're having coffee with them, think of them as being in the elevator. That's what they want to know, meaning what are the connections and what are you working on a little bit more globally. And then think of, here are my peers, a whole separate set of vocabulary, and that's more detailed and more problematic-based. So, one last little thing. Here's my email address. 
If you have any questions whatsoever at all, you can email me and say, uh, but what about? Or I have a problem with this word. And we can perhaps even speak on the phone. So there are a number of ways that we can continue with this to say, here's how we want to start speaking more clearly. Here's what you can do for that clarity cup. And more importantly now, it's a matter of you practicing. All right, I'm around. If you have some, you can come up. I'd love to hear more of your short, shortened syllables. And thank you very much for your time. Go speak loudly, everyone. Go speak loudly. Thank you.